having a terrible argument with his wife Maeve, a beautiful young woman with the blackest, darkest of eyes. She also had the finest of fair hair, golden under the sunlight, and she combed it constantly, nine neurotically, as they argued. Will you stop combing your damn hair and listen to me? Peter tried to pull the comb, but she guarded it like a cat with her newborn kittens. Peter, a fisherman by trade had grown up in Bally Strange, and like all native men of the town, was initiated into the ancient secrets at the age of 18. He was told it was his birthright to marry a woman with supernatural powers, and he was told by the town elders that it would happen naturally. He did not need to cast his net and hope to capture a mirror like Cecil. He did not need to go out and seek sexy witches, erotic vampires, are beguiling fairy women. For there was a natural order to life in Bally Strange, and as such, a supernatural wife would find him. When Maeve showed up on his doorstep, literally one dark night, with her wild fair hair wet and clinging to her face, he got down on his knees and thanked the ancient witch that cursed the menfolk of Bally Strange. Maeve's mysterious ways only added to the excitement of their marriage, and he loved the way she tantalised him by not revealing what kind of supernatural creature she might be. Secretly he'd check out her teeth, morning, noon and night, to see if she had any similar traits to Dr. Winterman's lovely wife, but her teeth were normal. When he'd see little animals, birds, bees, bats, he'd say, Hello Maeve! in the hopes of getting a reaction, just in case she was like Tony's equally hot wife. But other than a bee stinging him once, he found no evidence that she was a shapeshifter either. And then as the years started to roll by, it just grew tiresome. And then the awful realization dawned that he drew the short straw. She was just a normal woman. He was robbed of his birthright. I just want you to be like the other women of Bally Strange, he said. Why do you want me to be like everyone else? It's decreed that all men in this town, yeah, I know, get to have supernatural sluts for brides. What's wrong with being married to a vampire, he argued like a spoiled little boy. You want me to go around biting people's necks? Sucking the life out of innocent people, seducing other men, toying with them, and then killing them. That's what vampires do. That is not a laughing matter, Peter. Why can't we just be cursed like everyone else? That's all I ask. She shook her head in disgust and then went back to combing her beautiful fine and fairest of hair. 
Sergeant Crowley was shaking inside the morgue. He was almost afraid to examine the body of the dead postman. He took a handkerchief from his pocket and wiped his forehead. He was sweating profusely. When he finally summed up the courage to examine the corpse, he noticed the neck. It was the first thing he saw. They were unmissable. Marks on the neck, he cried. Marks on the neck again. The door opened behind him and Dr. Winterman walked in, matter-of-factly, pulling on his white gloves. Sergeant Crowley, good to see you again. Is it good, Doctor? Winterman, Dr. Winterman. Your autopsy made no reference to these clear marks on the neck. Dr. Winterman looked at him curiously. The cop may have been a coward, but he at least had half a brain. Just one of many injuries caused while listening to death metal whilst delivering the post. Sergeant Crowley now looked at the doctor in bewilderment. But how? Could be any number of things. Some air guitar that got a bit out of control. Possibly from playing it behind his head, Hendrix style, and trying to drive at the same time. He was evidently a terrible postman. Nothing sinister then? asked the sergeant. Nothing sinister, sergeant, unless vampires are suddenly real. Good one, whimpered Crowley. Good one, doctor. A group of skinheads had gathered on the beach. They were drinking cider at the very spot where the vampire Jane decided to rid the world of their colleagues. One of them, Simon the skinhead, raised a can. To be good, mate, Stuart. The two other skinheads, Robbie the skinhead and Johnny the skinhead, clinked cider cans with Simon. This was the spot, Soim, said Robbie. Pretty sure this was the spot. What did you see, Rob? said Simon. I don't know. A man, a woman. They were scary, the two of them. I mean, first she was dead sexy, but then she was dead deadly. A pure animal saw him. Terrified us. They murdered Stu, Davy and Pete. What did they look like? I don't remember saw him. Like I said, she was hot. We thought we wouldn't mind having a piece of that. But she had other ideas and wanted a piece of us. But she was hot. Real hot for this part of the world. Hot? Is that all you bloody got? said Simon, getting very annoyed. What little blood there was soon drained from Simon's sickly white complexion, and on seeing the change in his visage, Robbie began to shudder. Simon grabbed Robbie, went psycho, and started to shake him violently. Remember? Bloody remember? he yelled in his ear. I can't, Simon. I can't. Robbie sank to the sand in a terrible fit of tears, clearly terrified of Simon too. Simon opened another can of cider and drank it down in one gulp. When they had all finished their ciders, Simon took the cans and made a makeshift headstone. Rest in peace, George, 
Simon then pulled out a knife and raised it defiantly in the air. For the copper? Who ruled the death? Simon could not bring himself to speak the words. Crab and cider, mate, said Johnny the skinhead. That's what the copper said killed our stew. Simon saw a crab trying to steal away towards the waters. Simon crushed it under his big hobnail Doc Martin boots. I hate bloody coppers, said Simon, with venom in his voice. Let's start with him. As the skinheads departed Ballystrange Beach, a woman walked along the water's edge, looking out to sea. She wore a haunted look, and her dark hair blew wildly in the wind. Further out to sea, some seals raised their heads above water. The seals made a sad barking sound, directed at Dulska, as if calling out. The barking grew into a full chorus. I'm trapped! shouted Dulska angrily. Can't you see? I can't go back. A tear flowed down her cheek and she turned to walk away. Sergeant Crowley had departed the morgue. Dr. Winterman pulled off his gloves. As he did so, there was a flicker of movement behind him. The eyes suddenly opened up on the dead postman. Postman Pat now sported a fine pair of very sharp fangs. He started to slowly rise. Winterman, as if he had eyes on the back of his head, turned swiftly around. He pulled a crucifix from his pocket and pointed it at the undead postman. Back down with you, said Dr. Winterman. The vampire postman snarled and hissed. Tin hollow hissing. At first, that began to gain in strength. Well, that's much better said Dr. Winterman. You got those metal vocals down now. The vampire postman grew meaner by the second, spitting evie frothy saliva at the doctor. Winterman jabbed the crucifix. Lie down, I said. That's the doctor's orders. The vampire postman withdrew, afraid of the religious relic. Now where did I put my utensils? said Dr. Winterman, pacing around the room. He suddenly remembered, and then quickly pulled a menacing stake from his white coat. He ran towards the vamp postman and plunged the stake deep into his heart. It sent his body into convulsions before the screaming snarls of the vampire fizzled into nothingness. There, there, said the doctor. Get some rest. He went to walk away, but turned around one more time to address the now lifeless corpse. And don't you be having any more dirty thoughts about my wife. Purple storm clouds, indeed. Badass babe, comes to town. There was a great commotion on Main Street. The denizens of Valley Strange were all lined up along the footpaths. A flashy black Porsche pulled lizard-like into the remote village, raising dust on the street, leaving a trail of powerful and pungent exhaust fumes in its wake. It was followed by a sleek black van, 
with an artistic depiction of a transfixed demon. The Porsche came to a screeching halt in the middle of town. As the dust began to evaporate, the door slowly opened and the long, sexy legs of Deirdre stepped out. The townspeople could only but look on in awe, as if a whole history of winning Miss Worlds had been distilled into one supreme beauty. She surveyed the nondescript little town. She scanned the locals. Her first impressions appeared to be one of disappointment. She saw no one with horns or any other non-human characteristics. On hearing the commotion, Dr. Winterman too stepped out of the morgue, rolling up his blood-covered sleeves. He noticed first the sexy boots and the bow and arrow slung over her back. She was quickly joined by three sexy young demon slayers, all clad in tight leather. He watched as they walked beetle-like across the street. Buffy has a lot to answer for, said Dr. Winterman. Marla in a skimpy bikini lay stretched out in her back garden, while the sun glistened off her bronze body. Tony arrived with cocktails. Babe, they're gone a little flat again. Tony, is that all you ever think about? Baby, you know I love them the way they are. I was only saying. Well, I'm not changing them. I like the way I look right now. I'm lying here in the sun, now that it is finally out, and I'm not changing anything about my shape. Besides, do you know how hard it is to get a tan under these unnecessary shadows? Babe, where I come from is sunny all the time. One day I'm going to take you there. In the hill above the garden, Deirdre and Terence hid behind a bunch of trees, along with the rest of the lovely demon slayers. This one is the shapeshifter, said Terence. She can change into anything, a bird, a cat, even the tiniest little fly. If she does, said Deirdre, we'll swat her in seconds. She's the one responsible for stealing my art collection. She has robbed all the great houses the length and breadth of the country. She looks too dumb to appreciate fine art. I'm curious how one really kills a shapeshifter, asked Terence, the excitement manifest in his breath. Deirdre motioned to her slayers. They instantly pulled out their menacing bows and without hesitation pointed the arrowheads directly at Marla. Never met a demon who liked a stake in the heart said Deirdre, as the slayers pulled tighter on their bows. Kill her now, said Terence. The bows quivered with extreme tension. Marla continued to stretch out in her back garden, beautifully relaxed, while Tony looked at her rather anxiously. Tony, I'm not making them bigger. If my life depended on it, would you do it for me? At the back of the garden, Terence now had a big satisfied grin on his face. That's her party piece, he said. I've seen her do it before. This will be your proof. Deirdre, however, gave him a very dirty look. Did you say a town of female demons or female boob jobs? Down in the garden, Tony continued to watch his wife like a sex-starved young man. Just for me, Tony pleaded. You are too much, said Marla. She jumped to her feet, very annoyed. She ran over and pushed her breasts in his face. 
Is this what your life depends on? Is it? Babe, don't smother me, cried Tony. On the hill above the garden, Deirdre was not impressed. Much as I'd love to, I don't slay suburban bimbos, she said, storming off. No, no, wait. She really is a shapeshifter, said Terence, running after her. This woman has destroyed my life. Lying on the soft grass, Marla sniffed the air, and she heard branches break in a hill above their home. Someone is spying, she said. As he scampered away, Terence turned around to check on Marla one more time. Perhaps she'd given in to her husband's repeated requests and humoured him by enlarging her breasts. But he saw that Marla was no longer there, was no longer sunning herself under the rear Galway sun. He looked into the air and saw a bird hovering around overhead. When Deirdre jumped into her Porsche, the bird was now cheekily perched on the side mirror. Terence quickened his step when he saw the impetuous little bird. And that's her. She's a bird now. A bird. Kill her, demon slayers. Kill her. But the bird quickly flew away, about a half a second after the Porsche shot off, leaving a trail of smoke in its wake that smothered poor Terence. In the town hall that night, the good men of Valley Strange were gathered, and there was general uproar. As much as Thurlock tried to calm everyone down, many of the men were in crisis mode, for it was well known amongst the menfolk of Valley Strange. Indeed, it was prophesied that a dark stranger would come to town one fine day and lift their glorious curse. When that day happened, a way of life, a unique culture, a sexy race of women would be gone forever. She is here to slay all our wives, said Tony Di Matteo. Their official titles are demon slayers, added William Swift. What? Is the senior vice president of demon slaying? asked Dr. Winterman. With all due respect, gentlemen, said Cecil, but a bunch of demon slayers arriving in town is the greatest load of medieval nonsense I have ever heard. How anyone can believe that baloney in this day and age is beyond me. Says the man who is married to a mermaid. She's not a mermaid, Dr. Winterman. She's a marrow. There's quite a difference, you know. They have stakes and cleavers, said Tony, upset at the planned assassination of his ample bosom wife, and all manner of instruments of destruction. They sound like common criminals said William Swift. Everyone calm down, said Turlock. If true, this is a very troublesome turn of events. Only for the grace of God, Marley didn't make her boobs any larger, said Tony. Sounds like divine intervention, sure enough, quipped Dr. Winterman. What can we do? asked Tony. Turlock took a deep breath before answering. We must ask our wives to curb their beastly instincts for a day or two, until these demon slayers leave town. Let's have them all lay low for now. Oh, 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 oh.